Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Sucker, you here? And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Welcome back to an episode that is actually being brought to you by our podcast editor, James, who helped to go and create this. It is a wonderful, truly fun episode. But before we go and jump into that, and there are multiple stories that we have to tell for it, I do want to remind everyone that we have just launched the Peru trip. And so there are going to be spots that are available to that. You only have to pay 25% down right now. It is the cheapest trip that we have ever managed to make. So if you do want to go on a trip with us to Peru and see Machu Picchu and all these other sites, then by all means, click the link down in the description. Simultaneously, there are some spots that are available still for Italy. So do go and sign up for that as well as if you are interested, or I mean, I say as well, but you know, sign up for whatever one you actually want to go on and enjoy and see with us. Either way, it is time to jump right into the episode because this week we have a number of different stories to tell. What we're going to be talking about today here, Gab, is going to be some assassinations, specifically a whole bunch of different ones that didn't actually work out. Because when you're talking about politics and you're talking about war and you're talking about all this crazy wild stuff, uh, it tends to get quite messy. And I don't think anything is quite nearly as messy as an assassination that ends up getting botched. That is something that is truly messy. So first off, first one that we're going to be talking about, 1962, Charles de Gaulle. The airport guy? Like the airport guy. Well, specifically, he was the president of France. See, this is the guy that got into a little bit of a pickle with the, uh, with the Algerians. Because you see, France had occupied Algeria since 1830. So after World War I, the Algerians had began to notice that a bunch of other African nations around them were starting to get, well, independent, I guess you could say. And they said, oh, hey, why can't we have some of that independence? And Paris was like, oh, yeah, 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 totally, totally. We're, we're definitely going to give you all that, you know, liberty that we constantly preach about because we're the French, you know, self-rule, all that. And you know what happens? They did not get their independence. Yeah, I'm no, guessing. they don't. They, they, they get nothing. They get jack. So by VE Day on May 8th, 1945, you have a bunch of Algerian protesters that decide that enough is enough. And they held all these impassioned demonstrations in the provincial capital of Satif demanding Algerian independence. The protests then soon turned violent and gunfire was exchanged with police and more than 100 born Algerian or, or Algerian born European colonists, which were known as Piedinors, end up getting killed during the process. And so how did the French military respond to this? Well, they go in and kill anywhere between like, you know, like up to 100, not 100, 1,500 Algerian Muslims. It gets 
real messy, real fast. Because they wanted their independence? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, the fridge. So in terms of colonial styles, there's a very interesting thing here. The the British usually historically had more autonomous rule when it came to their colonies. The French had a mixture. In some places, they practiced that same kind of autonomous rule. In other places, it was very centralized. And Algeria being so close was one of those places that was very strongly controlled. And they had tried to increase as many European colonists going to Algeria as possible in order to, what's the term? Frenchify the, the, like the land. They wanted to do that, to change the population, to change the culture, to change the language, to really make it a part of France. And so if you fast forward nine years and France has been well, it hasn't exactly gone well for them, for their other colonies. They suffer a rather embarrassing defeat in Indochina, and Algerian Muslim guerrilla groups go and form up, and they call themselves the Front de Liberation Nationale, the National Liberation Front, also known as the FLN. They initiate a series of attacks on both military and civilian targets throughout the colony, hoping to force the French government to recognize Algeria as a sovereign state. So, how do you think that the French respond? Probably weren't happy about it. With overwhelming force would then be the answer. We're talking like 470,000 troops and engaging the rebels in a war that took seven years to end and cost over half a million lives. In and around the city of Algiers, the fighting was the worst, and by the end, both sides were employing torture and terror tactics, basically. So the Piedmont, the um, the Algerian-born Europeans, right? They and the French army officers in country stage a pro-French coup in the spring of 1958 in Algiers, and it gives Charles de Gaulle the political momentum to go and return to office as president of France in November of 1958. The story was told that he was going to put an end to all of these ridiculous revolts, and de Gaulle did have a strong stance on it. Can you imagine then how disappointed that all of these people who had fought, all of the hundreds who had died for him to get back in office, how they felt when he reversed his stance on the entire situation and instead decided to declare his support for Algerian independence. And so due to this, a bunch of high-ranking French officers formed an underground organization called the Organisation de l'Armée Secrète, which I'm Butchering things, because again, I don't speak French. It's basically the secret army organization, or in French, the OAS. So in April of 1961, the OAS launches a unsuccessful coup in Algiers, trying to change old Charlie's mind and not let Algeria be free. When that doesn't work, the OAS begin to carry out multiple acts of sabotage and assassination in both Algeria as well as metropolitan France designed to prevent the promised turnover of control. And at the top of their lists of targets for assassination is none other than, can you guess it? Charles de Gaulle. Charles de Gaulle. And this didn't change the outcome of Algerian independence, though. And on July 1st, 1962, the Algerians would approve terms for the handover. And two days later, de Gaulle would announce the nation's sovereignty. And this pissed off so many French citizens, as well as the army. The majority of the million or so Piedmont immediately fled Algiers, and the OAS started plotting acts of reprisal. Because again, the million Piedmont. There were a ton 
of Europeans that were living there at that time? That word is noir. Noir, noirs, noirs, noir, noir. Am I, I'm butchering. I told you I don't speak French, (laughs) but yes, noir, you are, you are, you are right. You are right. Okay, no, that was bad. Listen, that was bad. I know, I know. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. Look, either way, a million of these people end up fleeing from Algiers to head back to France because they don't want to stay in a country then that at that point is probably going to turn hostile to them as they imagine. So the OAS start plotting all these acts of reprisal. And in fact, the leader of the assassination attempt on Charles de Gaulle's life was going to be a rather interesting character. This was a French army officer by the name of Lieutenant Colonel Jean-Marie Bastien III, and he was 34 years old, and he served in the French Air Force. Known to the press as French von Braun, Bastien III was a talented and brilliant officer who was actually serving at the time as the principal aviation weaponry engineer in the French military. You know what's really ironic about this? His father had actually been a major supporter of de Gaulle since the 1930s. Like we're talking since like breaking out into World War II in 1939, his father and his family, big de Gaulle supporters. And he just was like, yeah, I'm going to assassinate that guy. Oof. Yeah, big oof. So Bastien Thurry's lieutenant was a 35-year-old Alain de Bourgrenet de la Tocne, which again, I'm going to be butchering the name of, but this was a French army lieutenant as well as an Algerian war veteran. And de la Tocne had earlier deserted the army and then joined with the OAS in Algiers. And he was very firm in the belief that political assassination was completely normal. How? How is it completely normal? I'm telling you this right now. It's the French. And historically, as you're probably aware, when when we cover the French Revolution, killing leaders is a very common thing that has occurred within French history. French presidents must be so brave. To rule over that. We're on what? The fifth republic now for France? There is always the possibility that we're going to end up seeing a sixth or a seventh. Who knows? No. The sky's the limit when it comes to France and governments. They're much more chill now. Oh, yeah. yeah. We'll see about that. That depends on circumstances. Let's see if they can defeat the bed bugs first. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, fair enough. Fair enough. So get this right. This guy straight up writes a letter to de Gaulle saying... Now that you have betrayed the army and the French people and given away Algeria, the only solution I see left is to kill you. And that is what I propose to do. The man writes a letter to de Gaulle saying this, Gab. <laughs> like, the balls on him to declare that is just like a normal standard thing that would have to be done. So, the plot to kill de Gaulle is given the rather dramatic codename of Operation Charlotte Corday which is named after the French revolutionary who had murdered the Jacobin radical Jean-Paul Marat in 1793. And while the would-be assassin's plan did seem fairly feasible, the logistics were an absolute nightmare. So get this. The OAS failed to provide them full cooperation that they had expected. They had promised to send money, and somehow that just never appeared. In another instance, there was a rival OAS faction that ended up stealing four of the automatic weapons that were earmarked for the operation, so they lost access to those guns. And then ultimately, most of the funding for the operation itself came from Bastien Thuris and De La Tocne's own pockets. Like, they straight up had to pay for all the shit that they were doing. 
Like, okay, okay. One of the things that they had is that they had to go and rent cars to, you know, do all the different stuff that they were doing. So the cost of those car rentals climbed to be so high that they just decided in the end, screw it. We're going to steal the necessary vehicles before the actual attack. <laughs> they were straight up paying for everything before that. And I mean, this really does highlight a classic problem that occurs with a lot of different revolutionary groups. Um, obtaining funding and resources. <laughs> Okay, so what you need to do is make sure you have a rich benefactor. Hey everyone, it's like who you here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Before you revolt. Yeah, no, that straight up is one of the things that happened. Or be willing to bankrupt someone else's treasury before you do so. That's what America did when the case of the French. We bankrupted them to get free. I just still do not understand that. Like, who would do that? The Why French. were they giving Out money? Out Purely despite the British, specifically because yeah, of but, the previous war. But bankrupting your own country... For sure. That's actually, I was about to judge, but I was like, nah, that's something I'd do. Oh, here's a little tidbit on that, just, just to express it. The major problem was not even like that they didn't have money. It's they couldn't get money and their system was so inefficient. So as an example, France's economy, it's like it's everything about it was double the size of Britain. I kid you not, it was actually double the size, but it's tax system, it's economic, everything about it was so inefficient that it was only able to get like a quarter of the revenue that it was supposed to. I kid you not. So that's why the state was always suffering for money because it quite literally couldn't do anything. It wasn't properly managed at all. So either way, back to the assassination. Finally, everything is ready. The plan gets called for men armed with submachine guns and riding in the backs of two vans to cut off and then attack de Gaulle's convoy inside of Paris itself. In May and June 1962, the group makes 12 attempts to carry out the plan. But due to a variety of reasons, like they either miss the link up with the convoy or there ended up being too many bystanders in the street or whatever, things just don't work out. 
Subsequent attempts would also fizzle out, and on one occasion, Bastian Thury would station his men along the road leading to a wedding that de Gaulle was supposed to attend, only to watch the president arrive by helicopter, not by car. And so in all, the conspirators would stage 17 of these unsuccessful, I'm, not even, I'm just going to call them dress rehearsals, in a campaign that much like the early outcome of the Cleveland Browns attempting to play American football, seemed to suffer one failed result after another. Yeah, my condolences to anyone from Cleveland. You're obviously a stronger person than I am, but their shit sucks. It has happened so many times. Anyway, Bastian Thury and De La Tocnay, codenamed Didier and Max, respectively, set up another ambush in Petit Clement along the road between Paris and Viacoule. And driving four stolen cars, these would-be assassins were supposed to station themselves at intervals along the road. And a source within the LC Palace was to phone word of the president's departure to Bastien Thury, who would be awaiting in a roadside cafe. Two primary routes led from the palace to the airport, and de Gaulle never let the chosen one be known until he was already underway. Therefore, a member of the cell was supposed to wait for the president's convoy at crucial junctions, then phone Bastien Thury with the chosen path. Didier would then emerge from the cafe, and as the president's car passed, would wave a newspaper to signal Max and the other gunmen. And as de Gaulle convoy approached, the conspirators would then block its passage and open fire with automatic weapons. So here we go. On the dank and drizzly day of August 22nd, 1962, a cabinet meeting ended up running long. And de Gaulle did not leave the Elsie Palace until 7.35 p.m. Elisee? Elisee. Elsie. I'm saying Elsie, aren't I? The whole time, the entire time you've been saying Elsie, and I'm like, what are you saying? That's not how you pronounce that. Okay, the Elysee Palace, all right? He leaves from this at 7.35 p.m., and he's seated beside his wife in the rear of the first two cars, like which is a Citroen DS19 sedan. His son-in-law, an aide-de-camp, Colonel Alain de Pessol, sat up front besides the policemen that were assigned as their driver. And then following in the second vehicle were two high-ranking police like officials, one was de Gaulle's bodyguards, as well as a military doctor, and escorting the unmarked sedans were two patrolmen on motorcycles. Now, as anticipated, Didier's informant would call to let him know of de Gaulle's departure, and five minutes later, the second call came. So emerging from the cafe, Bastien Thury would alert his associates, and the four vehicles drove into position. So get this. Didier sees the president's car, and he starts waving the paper. But as the saying goes in military circles, no plan survives first contact. What Didier fails to factor is, is that when the sun goes down, light gets dark. So he's waving the paper. Remember, the meeting went till 7.35 p.m. So he's waving this paper around and nobody can see him. And the next guy who's supposed to pass the message on doesn't ever see him and like start to pass the message down. And due to this, the whole crew kind of gets caught up with their pants down, and suddenly the president's entourage is like right in their face. So on catching sight of the convoy, the driver of one of the two stolen cars shouted, open up, to the two armed men in the car. They then unleashed a barrage of automatic weapons fire at the president's car, hitting it repeatedly on the sides and tires. And it should be noted, 
that while doing so, they sprayed down the front side of every building behind the president's car as well. Max, for his part on the whole affair, was supposed to make sure that the president's car didn't escape by blocking it in so that they could walk up on the car and execute the occupants. But he was too late slamming on the gas pedal and he barely missed cutting off the president's car. So as de Gaulle's car began to flee, Max's passenger, George's Wadden, would fire at the rearview window, shattering the glass. Warned by his son-in-law slash bodyguard, de Gaulle and his wife had slumped down flat in the seats, and Max, thinking that they had successfully completed their mission, shouted, You got him! to Watton. And guess how many times de Gaulle and the group in his entourage were hit, Gabby? Guess. Twice. Zero. Not a single round hit its intended target. Not even an innocent bystander died. Literally no one got hit. These guys shot oh, at least 187 times. They found 187 shell casings at the scene, which doesn't even count how many they potentially took with them. And they injured not a single person. Were they stormtroopers? Oh my God, you know, they might as well have been here. They were, they were French stormtroopers. So gunning the engine of the lead Citroen with barely 14 bullet holes in its side, like literally 14 holes in the car itself, like everything else was just around them. The president's driver ends up speeding out of Petit Clement and conveys de Gaulle and his wife safely to the Ville Couble Air Base. And on arrival, de Gaulle would remark to those gathered, oh, this time it was close. <laughs> like, that's it. That's all he has to say about it. One can really only imagine just how secure the driver's job was after he literally drove his client safely through hundreds of rounds of automatic fire at attempts to block him in. Like nothing like being able to place, oh yeah, I saved the, the French president's life, you know, on a dull rainy Tuesday on your resume. Like, holy crap, that guy would have been set. The driver's dinner was the best tasting meal of his life that night. I have no doubt. I mean, I really hope that he got a raise. I don't know what actually happened to the guy, but I really hope that he was rewarded for that. And as it turns out, the, uh, the DS-19 that he had been driving had just been fitted out with a state-of-the-art hydro-pneumatic suspension system that let the driver maintain control, even though all four tires might have been blown out. We're talking about in the, in the 60s. This is some real James Bond-level stuff right here. It really shouldn't come as a surprise then that for the rest of his life, Charles de Gaulle was an ardent supporter of the Citroen automobiles and their quality. In fact, you could even say he bet his life on that. Why are you the way that you are? Because <laughs> it's funny that I have to. <laughs> so look, okay, in the end, nine of the conspirators were caught with six escaping the country. Watton, the man who had broken the rearview window with his shot and was known to collect human ears in a jar. That what? Is, yeah, no, that's a whole creepy thing. I love how you were just going to speed past that. Oh, yeah, no, no. It's just, you know, it's just like a normal thing that he does. Just like collect human ears in a jar. That's besides the point. Yeah, some people collect rocks. Some people collect coins. Some people collect human ears in a jar. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, remember there was that whole thing about a veteran of the Algerian War and how torture was employed? I understand so that. getting your kills, cut off an ear as proof. That was the kind of thing, you know? Yeah. It's giving like Elizabeth Bathory. Yeah. So weirdly enough, that guy manages to flee all the way to Paraguay and he lives the rest of his life there, dying of a heart attack in 1994. So he manages to escape. The trial... For everyone else, though, that runs until March the 4th. Bastin Thury was found guilty and gets sentenced to death. 
as were five other conspirators, including De La Tocne. De Gaulle would later commute five of the death sentences to life imprisonment, but there was, however, where his leniency would end. There was going to be no mercy for the disgraced Air Force colonel. Bassol would later list his father-in-law's reasons for having refused clemency for Bastien Thury, saying, The defendant had directed his subordinates to fire on a car in which an innocent woman, Madame de Gaulle, was present. He had endangered civilians traveling in a car near the president's vehicle. He had brought foreigners, the three Hungarians, into the plot. And while the other conspirators had done the actual shooting, thus exposing themselves to possible return fire, Bastien Thury had merely directed events from a safe distance. De Gaulle, the old soldier, saw this as an act of unpardonable cowardice. So weirdly enough, it's possible that if he was one of the guys who was also shooting at De Gaulle, De Gaulle probably would have maybe, maybe could have been like, okay, yeah, you're free to go. But because he was a coward and stood behind and ordered other men to shoot, he wasn't going to be forgiven. And so a week later, on the morning of March 11th, Didier was woken up and told that he was going to die that day. The French government was so worried about reprisals from the general public that they lined the road to the prison with over 2,000 policemen. And at 6.42 a.m., as he clutched a rosary, Jean-Marie Bastin III was tied to a post and then shot by firing squad. And, weirdly enough, that was going to be the last time that the French government would execute a prisoner in this manner. You know, that's actually an interesting question that that brings up. Execution methods around the world, like when was the last time that certain methods of execution were used? Because there have been a lot of different methods of execution. So I'm wondering when would be the last one. Firing squad is a real thing. And he, oh, yeah, still I, to the same. I, I know that. But for some reason, I forgot. Mm-hmm. But have you ever read like 100 Years of Solitude or something? I'm I pretty haven't. sure someone. You haven't read that? No, no, I haven't. I'm pretty sure they used a firing squad in there mm. at some point. I, know I don't that, know. I read that when I was way too young and it just kind of stuck with me. I think Morocco was the last example of someone being buried alive as a punishment. Yeah, like there was, a, like, yeah, it was a serial killer. He was buried alive in Morocco as a result. I remember that. I covered that story because he would kill young girls when they came to his, to his uh, telegraph office. Not his telegraph office. He would write letters for them because they couldn't write and then he would murder them for money. How does he get money if he murdered them? So people would go to his office to pay him potentially to, uh, to write letters because not everyone is literate at that time. And when he would come across like young girls, he would, um, or he's, I think he did it to some men as well, but it was mostly girls. He would kill them and take all their belongings, sell their clothes, etc. because usually their clothes were more valuable than the money that they had on hand. So that's what he would do. It was honestly for chump change. And I think he killed like 30 something people, but yeah, that was the last time that someone was buried alive as a punishment, at least, from what I was able to find. Either way, in 1968, Max and the other conspirators were included in a general political amnesty, and they end up actually getting released from prison or end up getting pardoned in absentia. And de Gaulle himself would retire a year later and died at home of an aneurysm on November 9th, 1970, two weeks before his 80th birthday. And after being granted his pardon, de la Tocne would author a book whimsically titled Comment je n'ai pas tué de Gaulle, which I know, I know it's French. I'm sorry, which just says how I didn't kill de Gaulle, <laughs> which I got to say as a title, that almost sounds like, what was the book that, um, um, why am I, why am I blanking on the name? I'm blanking on the name of the, of the, the OJ Simpson, like 
what was the book that he ended up writing of like, I didn't kill my wife or how I would have? What was the thing? He wrote something. I know he wrote something, but I've never read it. It almost sounds like the political version of that. Editor's note, the name of the book is If I Did It. But when he was asked during a promotional press conference, oh, did you consider when you carried out your operation that Madame de Gaulle was also in the car? He replied, well, she married him for better or worse, didn't she? I mean, she did. <laughs> like, dude, that is such a savage statement. Oh, she married him for better or worse. And this was definitely the worst. I'm just saying if someone was trying to assassinate you. Yeah. Oh, I'm out. Wow. Okay. I'm out. They say ride or die, but I'm more of like the ride. You say ride or die. die. I'm the ride away. That's what you are, Gabby. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I just want you to know. Thanks. I appreciate it. Like my for better or for worse is like, um, I don't know. Better not being shot at. Worse, um, anything right before being shot at. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's yeah. the worst I'll go. That's the cutoff here. Good <laughs> to know. I'm glad to know that we've established here in therapy exactly where it is that we need to be. Yes, not getting shot at. Awesome. Yeah. Bare minimum. <laughs> the bare minimum. The bare minimum. The bar that's, is on the floor. That's the, yeah. Wait, wait. The bar is six feet under. Oh, I was just about to say that. I saw your face. I was like, I'm going to say first. <laughs> My wife has beat me to a punch. You know me so well. I love you. Mwah. Okay, don't get all mushy on camera. How can I be mushy? Those are just bullet holes, baby. Stop it. Get some help. Don't judge me for this, okay? I had to <laughs> add something else in. So the, one of the other guys, right? De La Tocne, He ends up living for another four decades, and he dies at the age of 82 in 2009. As he told a New York Times interviewer 36 years later, his only regret was not having killed de Gaulle. What? They they did not give a shit. Like, you'd think after all this time that they would have calmed down and been like, yeah, no, we probably should not have done that. We're we're seeking forgiveness. These guys got pardoned, and they were all still like, yeah, no, we we still really wish that we had killed the guy. (laughs) It's crazy. Okay, moving on. The next story that we have here is going to be preceded by a little bit of a fact. Teddy Roosevelt. So Theodore Roosevelt had an an assassin attempt to kill him. And that story is so good that it should be in the episode, but it's not going to be. And you may wonder, why is that, Gabby? Because he is Teddy fucking Roosevelt. And he really is a badass and probably should get his own episode. I know a whole bunch of people have done episodes on him, but that is something that I think that we could potentially do here in the future. I don't know if we'll do it as a patient exclusive or whatever, but it's something that should be made. Now, of all of the assassins in this episode, all of them ended up coming up short in their efforts, but none of them came up quite as short as Giuseppe Zangara. You see, Giuseppe was a very angry man, and he was a small man. He was an angry small man with angry small ideas. He measured at a very solid five feet tall, probably on days where he had his, uh, you know, high hopes, so to speak. Don't look at me like that. And unfortunately for Giuseppe, he was also riddled with mental illness. This guy was, um, how do I even put this? Uh, he was a few bananas short of a fruit stand. He was kind of batshit. He wasn't dealing with a full deck. He checked most of the boxes when it came to comparisons to the, uh, to the DSM, that's for sure. I'm trying to say that he, the, the dude was crazy, Gabby. Like that he was straight up crazy. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? <laughs> you get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. 
Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the host of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser-known figures. For instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. See, born in the year 1900, he emigrated from Calabria, Italy to the United States in 1923, hoping that he was going to be able to improve his prospects in his life. But after the whole Great Depression ends up happening in 1929, the only thing that he's able to find was joblessness and despair. Zangara really had no real education, and he worked as a bricklayer. He also suffered severe pain in his abdomen, which doctors told him was chronic and wasn't something that was able to be cured. In 1926, he underwent an appendectomy, but it didn't really help, and if anything, it may have even made his pain worse. The doctors who would later perform his autopsy attributed his abdominal pain to adhesions that they found on his gallbladder. And in his prison memoir, Zingaro himself would attribute his pain to being forced to do grueling physical labor on his father's farm from an early age. He would write that his pain began when he was six years old, and it's difficult to tell if the story is true. But either way, regardless of it, many have argued that at the time of his attempt, Zangara was incapable of distinguishing right from wrong and should have been able to plead insanity because the dude was in such constant pain that there is no way that he would have been able to think straight, so to speak. Like, you know that feeling? Imagine in those scenarios where you stub your toe or something else happens and you have like this blind moment of rage and pain where you feel like you could do just about anything. That is pretty much what this guy's life was like constantly. But one thing that we do know for sure, though, is that he was mad at Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, who had not even taken office as president yet. And this was as he was making a two-week pre-inauguration tour of the Caribbean and South Florida. And Zangara, oh, 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 he wasn't going to be having any of that. So while making a brief stop in Miami, FDR gave an impromptu speech from a convertible backseat of a green Buick in front of a crowd of around 25,000 people at around 9.30 p.m. And in all, he probably took around five minutes to speak to the crowd. As FDR was getting ready to wrap up his speech, thanking his host to the city of Miami, Zangara, since his window of opportunity, was closing. See, here's the interesting thing about this guy. 
having served in the Italian army, this very tiny dealer of death then realized that he couldn't actually see clearly or obtain good aim at his target. So he stood up on a rickety and wobbly metal folding chair and he pulled out his revolver and while struggling to try and maintain his balance, he peered over the hat of the Lillian Cross in order to get a clear aim at his target from 25 feet away and he placed his gun over Mr. Cross's right shoulder. So he's like, he's putting his gun on some guy's shoulder. Mrs. Cross. Lillian Cross. Mrs. Cross. So he's putting it over Mrs. Cross's shoulder. And Zenkar's first shot was slightly off target and ended up striking the then mayor of Chicago, Anton Cermak, who was traveling in the same vehicle as FDR and seated right next to him at the time. Had he had another clear shot, FDR might have been dead even before becoming president. And then the history of the world would have been changed or impacted in some way, shape or form. We don't really know. But by that point, people, of course, realized um, this guy is trying to do something crazy. And in this beautiful moment of humanity that was going to be echoed 70 years later by the passengers of Flight 93 on a certain Tuesday morning in September, these bystanders decided to forego any of their personal safety and do something about the situation. Lillian Cross, that lady herself, she was only five foot three and 105 pounds. She immediately begins to grab Zengar's arm and to just ruin his aim, throwing it back and forth. Some grabbed at his clothing and legs. Others began to knock him off his chair. Someone else tried to grab his arm from behind. Hands and arms were literally everywhere. Now, a lot of would-be assassins would probably realize at this point that their chance was gone and they would try to escape, you know, because they're not going to be able to carry out their mission. Not Giuseppe. He is not your ordinary assassin. And this is where the meme comes in. So anyway, he started blasting and he just starts firing off every possible shot that he can do. And by the time he was done, it would seem that he had hit every single person but Roosevelt. Five people ended up getting hit here in this time. Mrs. Joseph H. Jill, which who was seriously wounded in the abdomen. Miss Margaret Cree of Newark, New Jersey, who had a minor wound in the hand and a scalp wound. A New York detective bodyguard by the name of William Sinat who had a superficial head wound, and Russell Caldwell of Miami, who had a flesh wound on the forehead. Just a flesh wound. As well as Chicago Mayor Anton Cermak, who was standing on the running board of the car next to Roosevelt. As for Lillian Cross, she had been so close to the revolver when the first shot went off that she ended up with powder burns on her right cheek, like it straight up burned her. A Secret Service agent by the name of Bob Clark had a grazed hand, possibly caused by the bullet that struck Sir Mac, but the intended target, Roosevelt, completely untouched. Sir Mac would end up dying of periantitis 19 days later on March 6, 1933, two days after Roosevelt's inauguration. Zangara was promptly indicted for first-degree murder in Sir Mac's death, And because Zangara had intended to commit murder, the fact that his intended target may not have been the man that he ultimately killed was not something that was going to be relevant as he would still be guilty of first-degree murder under the doctrine of transferred intent. So Zangara goes and pleads guilty to the additional murder charge and gets sentenced to death by the circuit judge or the circuit court judge, Yuli Thompson. And this guy truly just does not care by this point. He was checked out from reality. 
Zingara said after hearing his sentence, you give me the electric chair. I know afraid of the chair. You one of the capitalists. You is crook man too. Put me in electric chair. I no care. Like, holy crap, the man had some serious anger. A really interesting fact is that it was directly related to this case. Under Florida law, a convicted murderer could not share cell space with another prisoner before his execution. But another convicted murderer was already awaiting execution at Ryford. So Zangara's sentence required prison officials to expand their waiting area for prisoners that were sentenced to death. And the death cell ended up becoming death row. And this is the first official term of death row that ends up getting used anywhere. So when we say that someone is waiting on death row, that didn't used to be the case. They used to move faster when it came to executions. So you would have a person that would be in the death cell and then they would get executed. But now you had people that potentially were waiting for large periods of time on death row. And that's where that goes. Zangara also at the same time refused to appeal any of his sentence. Now, and after only 10 days in detainment, he was executed on March 20th, 1933 in Old Sparky, the electric chair at Florida State Prison in Ryford. Zangara flipped shit when he learned that no newsreel cameras were going to be filming his final moments. And his final statement was to yell, Viva Italia! Goodbye to all poor peoples everywhere. Push the button. Go ahead. Push the button. And yeah, you know, unsurprisingly, they, uh, they, they, they pushed the button, Gabby. So he really just wanted the death penalty? He wanted, to, he wanted this guy. So remember what we said in the beginning, he was A, batshit crazy. And B, he was in constant pain his entire life. We don't, we still don't know why he even attacked Roosevelt. We don't know. We just know that he got it into his head that Roosevelt was like the enemy of the world and that he needed to take him out. He knew that he was probably going to die and he wanted to do so as a, quote, hero, I guess. And then from there, be executed publicly and like his memory would live on forever. And also he would stop being in constant pain. They didn't have gallbladder removal surgery. Well, they didn't know at the time. Like, you remember, he had the, the, like the appendectomy, but it didn't actually help. So they didn't know what was wrong with him. Remember again what we covered about medical technology from the previous episode? This is the 1930s. And we were talking about what they were doing with the radium in like the 1950s. Oh, yeah. True, true, true. Yes. Oh, man. So if our first story was about an angry but incompetent man, and our second story was about an angry little man, then our last story is going to be about an angry man who seemingly did everything right, but was still completely out of his depth. The final story that we're going to be talking about is Andrew Jackson and the time that someone tried to assassinate him on the steps of the U.S. Capitol. Why would somebody want to assassinate Andrew Jackson? I don't even know how to answer that here because a lot of people today would probably try to assassinate Andrew Jackson. What'd he do? Andrew Jackson is... um. Old Hickory, how do I even put this? He was a guy that I would call a, uh, he was a badass, but he was also a massive dick. Like he so really was a lot of people. You don't try to kill them. Yeah, no. So he was a war hero for the United States, but simultaneously, he's the guy who's responsible for the Trail of Tears. Oh, like yeah, okay, Americans. fine, I get it. Yeah. So um, total, total dick, uh, but also a really badass figure and like a lot of the stuff that he did and how he would act and deal with people. Andrew Jackson is the guy that had that parrot that because he was a soldier um, at his funeral, the parrot was just cussing people out because that's what he would do. He would cuss to the parrot and the parrot in turn 
would, uh, would cuss at everyone else. So much so that the parrot had to be removed from the funeral because it kept on cussing out the guests. It's, I know you're looking at me funny. It's just a funny little thing. That's something. So yes. But with Andrew Jackson, though, this is the first time that anyone has attempted to assassinate a U.S. president, and it was the year 1835. So I would like you to imagine, Gabby, if you can, that this is a political climate in which everyone is completely polarized. Propaganda and media narratives are being heavily pushed, and a populist president comes along and whips up nearly half the country by speaking to them about their frustrations about the world around them. And the other half of the country thinks that he's a dangerous lunatic and that he's out of his mind. Information of dubious veracity is being tossed all around so much more frequently than salmon at an Alaskan fish market. And conspiracy theories will abound. No one seems to be able to agree on anything. And as this populist candidate actually wins the election, sending half of the country into, whether you call it justified or not, a state of fear, it gets wild. Can you, um, can you imagine that, Gabby? I know it's a big ask. Can you, can you just imagine that a populist leader comes up and half the country gets alienated and gets really, uh, really angry and nervous about what could potentially happen? No, yeah, no, fine. totally, totally doesn't happen. Yeah. So yeah, 1835 felt a whole lot like what we could have potentially seen in like 2016 or 2020, if you want to compare it to anything. And the populist president in the scenario, it's Andrew frickin' Jackson. He is a 67-year-old on a dreary, misty winter morning of January 31st, 1835, and he's attending the funeral of a South Carolina U.S. representative by the name of Warren Davis and just finished paying his respects. Jackson, at the time, was also, interestingly enough, sick at the time and likely fatigued and generally just tired and maybe a bit more slower than normal. He even had a blanket that was wrapped around him as he sat listening to the eulogy that day. And he's on his way out of the Capitol when he's confronted by a man named Richard Lawrence. See, Lawrence was an unemployed artist who blamed Jackson for his lack of work as well as his, his, you know, terrible life. And he meant to exact revenge upon the one who he perceived had been slighted by it. So he withdrew from his cloak, a loaded revolver, and pulled the trigger. He was standing directly in front of Jackson, where there were no obstructions in his way. There was no bodyguards that could dive in front of him. There was no vehicles, no horse, no anything that he could have gotten behind. He was nearly arm's length away from the president when he pulled the trigger. And guess what happens? Nothing. Nothing? Nothing. Pulled, was the gun jammed? No, the, the weapon misfired. The, really? Yeah, the weapon misfired and it refused to propel the round. So, Wait, so, what does misfired even mean? So there's a variety of things that it could potentially mean. Generally, misfire means that it can fail to fire or that if, say, for example, there's not enough powder or too much powder, that it creates a problem. It really depends upon the definition of the gun. And this is 1835. So if I recall correctly, the weapon that he's using at this time is like, it's like a cap and ball, right? So if he has a pistol and he's using this, it's not, the machinery may not be um, precise to the point that it ignites things properly. So if it didn't hit what it needs in order to fire, then it doesn't fire. So the weapon does not fire the round and Jackson for a moment is safe. But then from the other side of his body, he pulls out from under his cloak, a second pistol. And guess what? And misfires too. 
Well, he finds out very quickly that he does not now have ideal conditions for the second shot. The president had responded like a drowsy hibernating bear coming to life when prodded by an innocent hiker. And this, <laughs> again, this is where we should pause ever so briefly just to explain who Andrew Jackson was. He was, as I said, a war hero to many. He was a veteran of the Indian Wars that had plagued much of America's frontier at the time. And legitimately, and to his credit, during the War of 1812, he did have a dazzling and amazing victory over the British at the Battle of New Orleans. Like, looking back, it's really hard to ignore some of the things that happened to Native American peoples and cultures due to specifically what he did. Again, kind of a massive dick. The way of thinking towards Native populations and the treatment of them, it is something that really taints his legacy when viewed through a modern lens. But back then, oh my God, the country loved this guy. Like he was a hero to so many Americans. And regardless of what you thought about him back then, or even today, you can't deny that the man was a fighter. He was a warrior. And so even in his old age, he had simply evolved into his next form, that of America's first cranky old soldier complaining about all the things that he disagreed with and deciding to do something about it. The man was full of grit. So when this guy, Lawrence goes and pulls out that second pistol. Do you know what he ends up, uh, you know what ends up happening? What happens? Nothing. It doesn't work no, either. Literally not a damn thing again. So, so here's, here's the, th the gist. When Lawrence's two pistols get later examined, they were both found to be properly loaded and well-functioning. They actually fired afterwards without fail, carrying their bullets true and driving them through inch boards at 30 feet. This is what was said by U.S. Senator Thomas Hart Benton. Later calculations were done that based on the ammunition, the weapons and used with the weather conditions and everything at the time, and it is still estimated that the chances of both weapons misfiring was a 1 in 125,000 chance of occurring. Because here's the thing, you were asking about misfiring before. Anytime that a weapon is fired, there is a chance that it is going to jam, that it is going to misfire, that something is going to happen. There is a chance. So the fact that with these weapons, which both had been properly prepared, that they fired afterwards to happen twice in a row was a 1 in 125,000 chance of happening. And it did. Wow. No other assassin had this ample of an opportunity to kill his target and failed so completely. And what's crazy is that Lawrence still had planned things out meticulously, and yet still, chance, fate, nature, God, whatever you want to attribute it to, it doesn't matter, something got in his way. And then even more incredibly, guess what happened next? What happened next? Jackson proceeded to beat the ever-living shit out of this guy. Like, remember when I said that Jackson, like, oh, he was old hickory. This was a soldier through and through. He whips out his cane and he proceeds to just beat the ever loving shit out of Lawrence to the point that it took Navy Lieutenant Thomas Gedney and Tennessee Congressman Davy freaking Crockett. And yes, we're talking about the OG, like Davy Crockett, like the guy that all those stories are told about. They had to get in the way and stop him and subdue Lawrence while also trying to save him from Jackson. <laughs> so Jackson then gets escorted to safety and checked out by a doctor who said that he suffered nothing more than a few cuts and scrapes that were consistent with beating the ever-loving daylights out of a moron. <laughs> Okay, I had no idea where the story was going from beginning to end. Um, what the heck? I know, right? 
And naturally, you'd think, okay, after such an event, the public and the media might talk about, you know, ways to ensure the president's safety in greater capacity. But what ends up happening? Well, remember, this is the mirror image echo of today's society, but 200 years ago. And just like what would happen now, it happens then. Within less than two hours, nearly every major politician, regardless of political affiliation, was connected in conspiracy theories with the attempted assassination attempt, including Jackson himself. People accused him of orchestrating his own assassination. So that night, Jackson even attended a party where he adamantly claimed that it was a plot that was carried out under the direction of his chief political rival, George Poindexter. British social theorist by the name of Harriet Martineau was in attendance, and he would later recall, quote, I was silent, of course. He protested then and there that there was a plot and that the man was a tool, and at length quoted the attorney general as his authority. It was painful to hear a chief ruler publicly trying to persuade a foreigner that any of his constituents hated him to death, and I took the liberty of changing the subject as soon as I could. But when they take a closer look at Lawrence, they realize that, no, this guy wasn't, um, this guy wasn't like, being hired by anyone, he was just insane all along. Because when they interview him, he begins to explain to them how in a very convoluted and most likely just completely made up bloodline that he was actually supposed to be the current king of England and therefore had been robbed of money that was owed him by the United States becoming its own country. In fact, according to Lawrence, if it wasn't for pesky old Jackson and his meddling government, then the contents of the Bank of the United States were supposed to be his by right. And surely the authorities would understand how he was simply addressing his grievances by shooting an old man. Like he, he was supposed to be the owner of all the money in the United States. Understand. Yeah. Reasonable. Yes, indeed. So Lawrence ends up getting brought to trial on April 11th, 1835 at the District of Columbia City Hall. And the prosecuting attorney was Francis Scott Key. Again, yes, that famous figure, Francis Scott Key. And at his trial, Lawrence was prone to wild rants and he refused to recognize the legitimacy of the proceedings. At one point, he even said to the courtroom, quote, is it for me, gentlemen, to pass judgment on you and not you upon me? After only five minutes of deliberation, the jury found Lawrence not guilty by reason of his insanity. Because, of course, the dude was absolute batshit. He was placed in a variety of different uh, hospitals and mental institutions. And then in 1855, he was committed to the brand new government hospital for the insane, which seriously suffered from a publicity problem based on the fact that, um, you know, they had a bit of a bad name. I think <laughs> the all... The government hospital for the insane. I mean, are you kidding me? But I think all of those forms of hospitals had bad raps back in the day. Like, I'm sorry, that was basically glorified prison. I know, but imagine this, right? With torture. Imagine how Americans feel now about someone saying where it's like, oh, the government's trying to control us, right? Right? Yeah. So in what sounds like the 1850s version of someone being gaslit, this is the government hospital for the insane where they could say, no, that person is crazy. Are they really crazy? Or is it a government conspiracy that they're saying they're crazy and they're trying to discredit them? I don't know. I'm talking on my ass at that point, <laughs> but know. the name is confusing itself. And years later, they would end up changing the whole thing to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, which sounds way less dystopian. It really does. Anyway, Lawrence would remain there until his death on June 13th, 1861. 
And as for security around the White House and the Capitol, it remained much as it had been for the duration of Jackson's term. Visitors were still allowed entry to the White House without any particular screening process, and they effectively improved nothing when it came to the president's security. It would be another 26 years before another U.S. president, Abraham Lincoln, was targeted for assassination. But this is before, you know, he actually gets assassinated. A watchful security team would thwart the conspiracy. Four years later, though, they would not be so lucky. Oddly enough, the Secret Service existed at the time of Lincoln's death. He had, in fact, ordered the commission on counterfeit money that ended with the organization being founded on July 5th, 1865. That was their job then. The Secret Service wasn't about protecting the president. It was about like investigating things with counterfeit money. It wasn't going to be until President William McKinley gets assassinated in 1901 that Congress would informally request that the Secret Service provide presidential protection. That straight up was not a thing before. They would have bodyguards, but the Secret Service wasn't for that. So, you know, that's, that's how that goes. But anyway, I think that that has been enough fun stories here for today. Everyone, thank you very much for listening. This has actually been a lot of fun here, diving into all these varying stories. And thank you so much, James, for doing all the research going into this here to be able to help present this to everyone. Everyone, thank you. I hope you all have a good rest of your day. Make sure to send in your family histories to us so that we have something here to present at the end of today's episode. And besides that, we will see you all next time. Goodbye, everyone. Bye.